Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys. If you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2, that's where we're going to kind of begin this morning, Genesis 2. As you guys are turning there, uh, excited to have you guys joining us for our series as we continue in on this idea of faith at work. If you guys were with us last week, we looked at the idea that this, these two ideas, faith and work, there's a profound disconnect between them. And what we want to do this morning is kind of move from that idea of a disconnect and begin to reconnect them and show you God's divine design for human work. That's where we're going to go this morning, God's divine design for human work. And, and before we get there, I, I think we also need to kind of begin with a bit of a confession. As much as we may talk this morning about God's design for work, as much as we may talk about what God's called us to be and called us to do, the reality is, as you think about work, we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to figure out how to avoid work, all right? Uh, now, for, I heard a story this week of an elementary school kid who asked, actually asked his mom a month after school now this spring semester, exactly when is summer, <laughs> exactly? A month in, it was already kind of like, I'd like to tap out. I'd like to find a little bit of an oasis and a break from this whole school work thing. Uh, for you guys, students, two weeks into the semester, and if I had a way of guessing, I'd probably wonder that some of you guys probably already have a spring break countdown clock going, Right. Two weeks in, you're like, I, I'm, I'm ready for a break already from work. Uh, I was thinking after watching the Aggies win last, uh, yesterday, uh, I'm thinking, how much time can I get off of work for what's going to be a really sweet March Madness, right? I'd like to kind of carve some time out to really put all my in into this whole March Madness thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, for some of us, though, it's not just that. There are story after story of lottery ticket purchasers who dream of the money that they will earn from the lottery, but not just the money, but that moment when they walk back into their workplace and they say to their boss, mic drop, I'm out, right? As creative and as colorful as it could be, probably often pretty colorful, they dream of that conversation that they can tell their boss, I'm done with you and I'm done with this place and I'm out of here. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get out of work. For many of us, we love vacations, we love getaways, we love to get away from our normal routines and our normal responsibilities, and then there's that thing called retirement, which is just an eternal long vacation that so many of us think, maybe one day I'll get to. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to avoid work and how to get away from it. What I want to do this morning, even as we begin, is I want to show you a clip from a movie that will provide you a preview and a picture of what would human existence be like if you never had to work at all. And what you're going to see from this picture, from this clip from the movie Wally, is that it is not nearly as attractive as you may think. And you guys want to watch the rest of Wally, that's what we may do. All right, here you go. Now, we did that yesterday. I don't want to do that. Well, then what do you want to do? I don't know. Something. Wow. Make a place grief. No, it doesn't sound Look, I'm tired of it. If you can't fold the straw, no, no, you have to decide any good. But, over here. Whoa. A is for Axiom, your home sweet home. B is for, by and large, your very best friend. Time for lunch in a cup. Feel beautiful. It's the new oh, stunning. Great. I know, honey. Men. Attention, Axiom Shoppers. Try blue. It's the new red. Ooh. Mm. 
I think for many of us, as we think about avoiding work, if it was taken to its logical extreme, that's what you get. And really, as we look at that picture, we think about food in a cup. We think about never walking, never having to do anything, robots taking care of everything. Frankly, it's not nearly as attractive of a view of the future and a view of human existence as we might like to imagine. In fact, Tom Nelson in his book, Work Matters, says this about this clip from Wally. He says that Wally reminds us that a do-nothing couch potato existence is actually repulsive and dehumanizing. But why is this? As human beings, we were, not, we were not created to be do-nothings. We were created with work in mind. Now, yes, there's, a, there's going to be a cycle between work and rest, but really, as we think about how God's designed us and how he created us, what we're going to see this morning is that God designed us for work, that there is divine design to human work. And that's what I want to show you beginning in Genesis this morning. So back to Genesis. And as we jump in, really what we're going to see that's going to be surprising is the first character on the scene as we jump into Genesis, as you'll know, is going to be God. But what Genesis chapter 2 will do is it will summarize what all that God does in Genesis 1. Let's pick it up in Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, as we're going to see, in a sense, the work of God. Notice Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. The text tells us this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all of his work, which, he had, which God had created and he had made. Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 is a summary of all that occurred in Genesis 1. It's an elaborate, it's, it's a simple summary in which you get a sense of over and over again that all that God had done in Genesis 1 is what the narrator in Genesis 2 describes under the category of work. But as we think about God's divine design for work, for human work, it's going to begin with divine work. It's going to begin with the first who ever worked in the first classic work week of six days in a rest, God himself. And really, as we look at the Genesis 1 account, we're not going to walk all the way back through it, but I want to give it to you as, a, as an element of summary that there's an incredible diversity of the action verbs in Genesis 1. I want you guys to notice what all does God do in his work in Genesis 1. We find in three different verses that the text tells us that God created. Not just that he created, but five different times we find that he created and then he separated what he had created. If it's not saying that he created, then it says that he made or that he made. And then at times it talks about him gathering or him putting something in its place. That as you look at Genesis 1, as you look at the verbs in Genesis 1, looking at the work of God, what you find is that God, out of nothing, created. And what he created out of nothing, then he takes that which he created and he orders it, he arranges it, he forms it, or he structures it. At times he takes the uh, light and dark and he separates them. He takes the heavens and the earth and he separates them. He creates and then he separates and he brings order and arrangement to it. In Genesis 1, the first time we see that God created, we find that the earth was formless and void when he first initially created it. But the rest of Genesis 1 shows us not just his creation out of nothing, but his ordering and his structuring and his arranging of the material creation in Genesis 1. But as we think about work, God is the first who works. And it's not just that we see there's incredible diversity of the action in Genesis 1, but there's also an incredible amount of repetition of the fact that God created, that he acted, and then he says that he saw that it was very good. Over and over again, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, 25. And then in 131, he says it was very good. Over and over again, God works. He looks at his work and he says, it was good. 
Last week, we talked a lot about the fact that faith and work have often been pulled apart as two concepts that are incredibly now disconnected. But as we jump back into our scriptures, as we begin in the biblical narrative, what we see from the very get-go is God at work, the creator of faith, the creator of the world, is the first to work. And not only is he active in working, it's not beneath him, but that which he does, he then says that it is good. In fact, in 131, he says it's very good. That it was good, that he worked, and that he was very good that he worked. In fact, Keller will summarize it this way, and in great quote, he says this, that in the beginning, then God worked. And that alone is profound as we think about work. That it's not just something that Adam and Eve or humans are called to do, but it's something that God himself first did. Therefore, work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. I love this line from Keller. Work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. That as we think about the biblical view on work, we begin where the biblical narrative starts in Genesis 1. And the first thing that we see in Genesis 1 is it's the first classic work week. And the first person to work is God. And the fact that he works shows it is not a necessary evil or a curse, but it is a good thing. As Keller says, work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. If you want to see what work is all about, Genesis 1 provides us the first exhibit A on the scene in the courtroom, if you will. Work is good. Work is great. It wasn't beneath God. In fact, it was good. And God steps into it. And it's not just uh, God that we see in Genesis 1. Even as we think of the New Testament and we think about Jesus Christ himself, how does Jesus first enter the scene? What's his first vocation? He's a carpenter, the big JC, right? This is what Philip Jensen says about him. If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and a noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world as a carpenter? That God creates and he orders his physical creation in Genesis 1. Even Jesus comes in the Gospels. And as he comes onto the scene of work and vocation, we find he's a carpenter. He's working with his hands and he's working with the material universe. Gospels all the way to Genesis, we see over and over again in terms of the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity. They work and it's good. So whatever you think about work, however you may devoid or create a disconnect between faith and work, you have to square it with the fact in Genesis 1 and 2 that God works. And then not only does he work, but it is profoundly good. He declares that it's good. And it's so good that not only does Jesus work when he shows up on the scene, but God will, in Genesis 1 and 2, he will then take this great gift that is work and he'll hand it off to Adam and Eve. And the next thing that we see in the movement of the Genesis narrative from one to two is we're going to see not just the work of God, but we're going to see that God works, then he takes this gift of work and he entrusts it to Adam and Eve to continue what he started. In fact, you're going to see again in Genesis one and two, we're not going to have the time to take a look at it verse by verse, but there's an incredible diversity of the action verbs for Adam and Eve specifically. What was the work that they were called to do? What was the creational mandate they received? In Genesis one and two, we find this. Then multiple times they're told to rule over the earth. They're told to be fruitful, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth, and to keep the earth. That over and over again, what we see of their work in Genesis 1 and 2 is that it's very tactile, it's very concrete, and it's very much about the created universe that God has entrusted to Adam and Eve. Really, you have Genesis 1, God is an inventor as he works, and then in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are gardeners as they work. And really, this idea of gardening is going to become an analogy for all vocations. 
What I want to do by the time we end this morning is I want to show you that every single vocation is going to mirror much of what we see Adam and Eve and even God doing in Genesis 1 and 2. That as an inventor for God himself as the creator and then as Adam and Eve as gardeners, much of what they do is a template. It is a model that fits on top of every other work in an abstract sense, and we'll talk about that. That every vocation is in some element, an element of creation for us, not of something out of nothing, but of a taking of the created order and a development and a creation of something that wasn't seen prior. That it is an advancing of the created order, it is a development of the created order. That's what vocation, that's what work is. That's what it was for Adam and Eve. They were to subdue the earth. They were to rule over the earth. They were to take the material resources and develop them into something different. We talked about this a little bit last week, or we'll talk about this as we move forward too, but in Genesis 4, we're going to see Adam and Eve, they'll make tools, they'll make music, they'll make wine. That they'll take the natural order and they'll develop it into something that is brand new that was previously unseen. If faith is confidence in the unseen, well, what work is, is is a making of the unseen seen. And all of a sudden, work and faith are not so diametrically opposed at all. Because what we see God do and what we see Adam and Eve do is they take the created order and they organize it, they arrange it, they work it so that it becomes something different. And we'll expand that idea a lot more next week when we look at the dignity of work. But from the very get-go, what we see is that Adam and Eve, just like God, they work. And in that, one of the fun, fun things I love about the, the creation account is that the first time that God says that something was not good is that he looks over at, Eve, or at Adam and he says it was not good that Adam was alone in Genesis 2.18. Why was it not good that Adam was alone? I don't think primarily it's about his romantic loneliness, all right? I don't think he's just like, oh my goodness, okay? I, I think really what's driving Genesis 2, of course, will be the need for them to be fruitful and multiply, but it's basically more about practical aloneness than it is about romantic loneliness. And here's what I mean. Adam is told, I want you to be fruitful, to fill the earth, subdue it, and I want you to fill the entirety of the earth. So how do you do that without procreation? Problem number one, right? Hence Adam and Eve. But also I think the other issue is that for Adam, the great task that was in front of him was way too large. And so what was Eve? Eve was a helpmate. And to be a helpmate was not a sign of derision or of condescension because God himself will be called the helpmate as well. But Eve comes alongside of Adam and what they form is a human partnership in this great task of work. They were to tend the garden and the garden was not like some little plot of land in your backyard. The garden of Eden was a massive, massive property. It wasn't just that the Garden of Eden was their jurisdiction, but the entire earth itself. And so how does Adam all by himself going to tend and subdue the entirety of the earth? Impossible. So God looks at Adam and his creation and says, it's not good that Adam's alone. And so when uh, God takes a rib out of Adam's side to provide equality between Adam and Eve as partners in this great task of work, all of a sudden you have the first human partnership in this great task of work between Adam and Eve. A partnership that will extend to all of human society, all of human cultures will develop that in the coming weeks. But it's not just that you get the first human partnership, but you also get a divine partnership between God with Adam and Eve. That work is something that is not just humanity's uh, uh, communal calling and, and mandate, but it is something that they share in partnership with God himself, that his purposes, God's purposes are all about our vocation and about our work. It's interesting, Keller will put it this way, I think it's a great quote. He says this, or Tom Nelson will put it this way. He says, being made in God's image, we have been designed to work, to be fellow workers with God. So for you students, as you step into the classroom to work tomorrow, 
you step into a classroom in a partnership with a creator God who has all knowledge of the entire universe. And as you come in school to learn and to step into a vocation one day, that whole arena of your life is meant to be in partnership with God, not something that God finds to be irrelevant or a distraction to his purposes, but his purposes are in work because there's a divine partnership in work between our creator God and humanity. That's why we've been in his image. That's why we're fellow workers with God. And Nelson continues on. He says, to be an image bearer is to be a worker. In our work, we are to show off God's excellence, his creativity, and the glory to the world. We work because we bear the image of one who works. That's why Genesis 1 is so imperative that you and I grasp that God worked. That it wasn't beneath him, but he worked for the sheer joy of it. And then he takes that great gift of work and he hands it off to Adam and Eve. To join into a partnership with one another and to join into a partnership with him in the great task of work. Again, as much as we talked last week about cultural uh, elements that have caused us to divorce work and faith, and even some issues within the church itself that have exacerbated the disconnection we feel between faith and work, what you have to see from Genesis 1 and 2 is that faith and work go hand in hand together. Because what work is, is a call to a partnership with God in the created order to bring out of it something that God has called us to bring out of it. The work is not divorced from or irrelevant to God's purposes, but God's purposes are going to be fulfilled in our work and in our vocation. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are foundational to that argument for you and I begin to conceive of how does the scriptures view work. Genesis 1 and 2 is where it begins and it's the foundation of that understanding. So where do we go from here? If that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, then many of you guys might be asking, what about us today? What about the church? What I want to do for you guys as we kind of begin to crack open this topic of work is I want to show you guys a few key New Testament passages that speak about work to show you that the thread of work didn't just start in Genesis and go silent, but it continues to be woven into the tapestry of our scriptures. And we're going to see that beginning in Colossians chapter 3 as Paul says this about work. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. We'll come back to this passage a lot. But whatever you do, Whatever your vocation will be, we talked a lot last week about the dichotomy between sacred and secular work and how that's not appropriate, nor something that the scriptures espouse here in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whatever vocation you may have, whatever degree field you're pursuing, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. I love the Greek word there, heartily. It literally is read exuke, or literally out of the soul. Whatever you do, whatever your degree is, whatever your profession is, do it with all that you have out of your very soul, your whole being. All that you are, do your work heartily. I think for many of us, as we think about school, or we think about vocations or, or workplaces, we think, how, much, how little can I put in to get by? And what I love about Colossians 3, it says, no, no, no. Put all that you have into it. Do it with excellence. Do it heartily with balance, of course. We'll talk about that more as we go forward, but do it heartily. Do it from and out of the soul. Do it with all that you have. Uh, Colossians is a bit more on the inspiring side. Second Thessalonians is a bit more on the rebuking side. Here's what Paul says to the church of Thessalonica. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. <laughs> boom, right? Layer lowers the boom. All right, then he continues and he says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Do not grow weary of doing good. It's interesting. What is the good that the church was to do? What were the works that their faith was to produce 
It has everything to do with work. I love in 1 Thessalonians, we'll look at this later on in a couple weeks too, but Paul will talk about calling the church of Thessalonica to excel still more in love. And as he works that application out in their lives, he drops it down into how they handle their work and their vocation. If the church of Thessalonica is going to excel in love, they've got to work well. So work gets started in Genesis. It's going to have threads that weave through the tapestry of our scriptures, even into the New Testament as Paul speaks to the church. The commands about work and the model for work is evidently and absolutely clear, New Testament and Old Testament. God worked. He called Adam and Eve to work, and the apostles call us, the church, to work as well. That God's purposes are not a distraction from work, but they are going to be executed and fulfilled in and through our work and through our degrees in our school. All right? So, God has designed us for work, but it's not just that there's a command and a mandate to do it, but as we look at this, we're going to see that there's a necessity for work. It's not just that we've been designed for it. It's not just that we've been uh, mandated and commanded to do it, but we've been designed for it in such a way that we need to work. I love Keller's quote here. If you think about those that don't have employment or they don't have the opportunity to work and contribute into something. And he says, without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. We don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and to live fully human lives. I think for many of us, we've heard so much of the discussion about you are not what you do, Right? that your identity and your worth is not tied up on your grades, they're not tied up in your vocation, they're not tied up in your profession. And I think we've taken that concept and we've gone to the logical extreme of the argument to say uh, that I, I would nuance it and I would say this, that you are not only what you do, that your worth is not only tied to what you contribute to the society through your vocation, that your identity is not only tied into what your vocation is, But there is an element of identity, there is an element of meaning, there is an element of significance in our vocations. They're not devoid from that, but if we put God first, then our vocations become secondary, and then we can see vocation and work as a gift from the creator God and not something that's a substitute for him. But it doesn't mean that there's no meaning or there's no significance or there's no identity or there's no worth in our lives through our vocations. Because for those that have struggled with unemployment or for those that cannot find a job, they do suffer massive sense of inner loss. (laughs) For many men who go through periods of unemployment, it is one of the hardest challenges they may ever face in their lives. Women as well. That this issue of work, this issue of uh, employment and what we put our lives into, whether that's in our home life or in a workplace or in a school setting, that that issue, that element, it has something and it has some tie into our identity, our purpose, our existence, and our meaning. It's not, divorced, it's not divorced from it entirely. Which is why I, I think uh, this next quote I think is so interesting because it's not just that those who don't have work suffer inner loss, but even further, I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. Notice how she'll move work to something that's all about worship as well. Notice what she says. What is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but a thing one lives to do. It is or it should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. What Dorothy Sayers just did there was it says, went beyond what Keller said. Keller says that if you don't have work, you will suffer inner loss and you're going to have a sense of emptiness. And that's not because you've made work an idol. It's because God's designed you for work. And so when you can't find it, there's something that breaks inside that is an incredible 
design struggle. Dorothy Sayers will take that argument and she'll move it even further to say that what work really is is not just something that we've been designed for, but it becomes a venue by which we offer ourselves actually in worship to our creator God. That work becomes a venue for not just our sanctification, but for our living out of our Christian witness and our life and its purpose. And so that when someone struggles and they don't have vocation, they don't have work, it's not just that they suffer internally a sense of loss and emptiness, but even more so, they lose a primary venue at which they have an opportunity to worship their creator, God. And again, we have such a dichotomy in so many ways between sacred and secular. So when we speak about worship, for many of us, we think about Sunday mornings and what we did about 10, 15, 20 minutes ago, in which we proclaim the excellencies of God in song. But worship isn't just what we do with our mouths, it's what we do with the entirety of our lives. And so we worship as, as fundamentally and as powerfully on Sunday morning as we can on Monday morning as you step into an 8 a.m. class. Nothing can boggle your mind more, I realize, right? You're like, this is suffering, all right? I get that, okay? But for some of us, we need to have our grids reworked in a sense because you can worship your creator no matter where you are and no matter the task that you're engaged in because work itself, school itself, family life itself can be yet another venue by which you worship your creator, God. And so if someone doesn't have work, they suffer inner loss, they suffer an opportunity to express themselves and worship to God. And so when we think about unemployment, and we think about poverty, what I want to do as we wrap up this morning is I want to move this idea and this concept from your, your viewpoint and your experience in a degree right now as you're thinking about work one day or in your workplace where you're currently working, and I want to move it from your experience to someone else's experience. And I want to move this discussion about God's design for human work from the inner element of life in the church to life outside the church and to those that may be already not even a part of the church because as we look at Brazos County itself, here's what studies tell us about unemployment rates here in Brazos County. From 2010 to 2015, in a, in a county size of about 200,000, unemployment rates range from as, up, as much as 7% and as low currently to about 3.5%. Which means for a city of about, or a county of about 200,000 people, that means year to year, there's anywhere from about 7,000 to about 14,000 people who are unemployed and likely living in poverty. What does God's design for human work have anything to say about that situation? What does it have to say about that situation? I think what we've seen from Keller, what we've seen from Dorothy Sayers is that for those that are struggling to either find a job or to thrive in a job, then they're going to sense, they're going to suffer and struggle with an inner sense of loss that's going to be profound. And another primary venue which which they can offer worship to God will be removed. And so joblessness, poverty, unemployment are not elements that we should look away from or feel like are irrelevant to our church life. (laughs) But a viewpoint and an understanding of God's divine design for human work says much about that situation. And all of a sudden, we begin to see that situation in a whole different way. And what I want to do as we wrap up this morning is I want to end with a video about a brand new ministry that we're jumping into and participating in this spring as a church that has everything to do about work and God's divine design for work. Imagine a musician who can no longer make music. By losing the ability to do something they were created to do, they lose a piece of themselves. They lose a sense of purpose. We were created and designed by God to work, and our work is one of the core places that we receive our purpose and dignity. 
But what if you didn't have access to good work? For millions of people in need, this is reality. Many men and women, for many different reasons, can't find employment, are underemployed, or are shut out of jobs. And without employment, there is loss of purpose and dignity, which creates a vicious cycle of poverty, economically, spiritually, and emotionally. Christians have always been engaged in the fight to break this cycle, but the majority of the church's effort and resources for those in need begins with food, then housing, then clothing. And then, at the very bottom of the list, is work. But without employment and the means to actually provide for themselves and their families, the cycle continues, which begs the question, what if we flip the list? What would happen if churches and nonprofits were empowered to actually help those in need, find and keep employment, and provide for themselves? The folks at Jobs for Life think this could change the game forever. Jobs for Life equips local churches and other organizations to champion the cause of work for those who need it most. By teaching individuals a biblical understanding of their identity and work and surrounding them with a community to support them, we can help people experience the hope and transformation they need to find and thrive at work. Imagine churches and nonprofits being centers where the cycle of joblessness is broken, where business owners receive employees who understand the value and purpose of work. Imagine families restored where children grow up with hope and a future. Imagine communities and entire cities renewed because purpose and dignity have been restored. Jobs for Life believes imagination can become reality. Visit jobsforlife.org to join the movement of people teaching others the dignity of work. If we really believe that God designed us for work, then that message matters for those of us that are in the church as those of us that are outside the church. If God really designed us for work, then it matters for those of us that have a degree will one day graduate and find a job as it does for those that struggle to find a job or struggle to keep a job. So one of the things that we're doing as we want to talk through this topic is we try to help you begin to reimagine work. We want to do that not just for you guys in the walls of the church. We want to help you do that as you think about outside the walls of the church. You think about our cities and our communities where that idea of work, that opportunity for work is not so assumed for them as it is for you. And so because of that, one of the things that we, our church has done, as the video talked about, we do a lot for food, we do a lot for housing, we do a lot for shelter and clothing, but really what we want to begin to do is, as the video talked about, is flip the script a little bit and go at the issue of vocation and work itself. So for you guys, how can you get involved in what we're trying to do for the first time ever this spring? What can you do as a student? A couple different opportunities I want to highlight for you guys with this new Jobs for Life ministry is there are a huge need to be on prayer teams for it, and there's a huge need to have a meal team for it. So what that happens on uh, two different nights a week is there are going to be classes for those that are looking to find employment, that are trying to be trained in employment to develop in skill sets for employment. And one of the things we want to do for the team of people who are coming together is, is, is sit down at a table and break bread together. And so a great way that you can jump into that to help establish those relationships is to help serve meals and help be a part of that. If you don't know how to cook, a great way to develop and learn those skill sets, all right? Uh, for you students, it's a great way to do it. And then I'd, I'd say for you table hosts and some of you working adults, uh, I want to highlight a few other opportunities for you guys as well, because you guys really would be hugely vital in what we're trying to do. One, uh, we need some business leaders that are employers that can help create opportunities for those that are receiving training that will graduate from the program and maybe come, come in even in a six-month internship and then walk out with a skill set and walk out with a reference for a lifetime and a trajectory now of work and vocation that they 
they hadn't had before. And not just business leaders that can employ, but we also need mentors that have skill sets that can come alongside of someone and help them with resumes, help them with interviews, help them with skill sets that they're trying to develop, and they can walk with them through that process over six months and even over two years. The other thing we can really use is some instructors that can help teach some of the material that we're talking about on Sunday mornings. So if this is something for you working adults that you find is really drifting and is really beginning to, uh, in a sense, I don't know why I said drifting, but it's beginning to kind of, in a sense, uh, kind of churn in you, then uh, being a teacher, helping train skills and helping do some of these different elements with this ministry will be an incredible opportunity as we look at God's divine design for human work, not just in the walls of the church for us, So we think about our cities and we think about our communities and how we can make a difference as a church. For so long, we think about mobilizing you guys to programs that are internal here. And what we're beginning to try to do is think about how to to help you find ways and avenues to be a steward of your experiences, your degree, and your skill sets, not here, but out there in our cities and our communities where there's a desperate need. Uh, And so that's our heartbeat, that's our prayer, to begin to think about God's divine design for human work. So let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I thank you that as we think about this topic, and for so many of us, as we've so separated out our faith from what we're going to do one day or what we're doing right now, Lord, I thank you as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, that we get a model of work. And a model of work that becomes an analogy for every vocation that we could step into, because for every single one of us, there will be elements in which we are called to create, we're called to order, we're called to arrange, we're called to separate, gather, and place. In whatever vocation, whatever field you put us in. And I pray, Lord, that you would begin a process this morning over the next few weeks as we would begin to see work and vocation reimagined. That you would help us to see it as you've designed it and you would help us to have an impact, not just in our own vocations where we would maybe find a way to thrive even better, but you would allow us to be a steward of our degrees and our experiences, not just in the walls of the church, but in our city and our community as well. Lord, we want to we confess that work matters not just for ourselves, but for those that are struggling to even find it. And Lord, I pray that we would have an opportunity to impact our cities and our communities in profound ways, that we could make a difference with the gospel and make a difference with skill sets as well. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. All right, the rest of your morning uh, is going to be table groups right after a few announcements from one.